For me to come from where I've come from, my life feels so miraculous. And so when I am in these places where I feel like, oh my gosh, you know, you have a book or you're doing this dream project or you have a billboard in Times Square for your artwork, it's like, it's actually so much to handle to kind of enter into a different life because having your dreams means that you leave a place where you were. Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert, the overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna, and Mava. Now get comfy, fellow Lady Brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. Sometimes there are moments in life where you sit back, pinch yourself, and realize in an hour or a month or a year from now, you'll be looking back at this exact moment as a defining one in your life. For us, that happened recently in Sydney, when we were lucky enough to speak to Cleo Wade, the poet, artist, author, and activist that has amassed a huge Instagram following, has campaigned for Hillary Clinton, contributes to publications like the New York Times and Vogue, and has often been dubbed by the media as the millennial Oprah. We met Cleo late one night, at the Old Clare Hotel over a few glasses of rosé and spoke about how she's built a career that, frankly, didn't exist. Cleo takes us back to where it all began, growing up as the only mixed-race girl in a highly racist and segregated area of New Orleans. Well, I am from New Orleans, Louisiana, which is in the south of America, uh, of the U.S., and I grew up in a place that is pretty racist. I was the only young black girl of most of my friend groups my whole life. My mother's white, my father's black. And the thing about being someone who is mixed race is that, you know, when you're white, it's very easy, especially in America, to walk into a room of all white people. When you're black, you can also, right? You you know, it's not as easy, but you can go to Essence Festival and everyone looks like you. There are spaces that you can go that are really deliberately and beautifully exemplary of what you look like. And when you're mixed, it's not really so easy. There's not really the convention of mixed kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and And so I think because of that, I never felt a need to fit in because I knew there was no way I could. My body alone told me that that wasn't possible. Mm. And I think because of that, it's really something that strengthened me on my journey because I had to figure out how I could, even if it was fake confidence, have enough confidence to be in the room to even exist, knowing that no one was going to look like me and someone was definitely probably going to say something that was going to offend me or upset me. And to be able to really live starting such an early life of saying like, feeling like you're being in your body is some act of rebellion and looking and trying to find that confidence at an early age was, I think, critical to my journey now. And in my journey as a younger woman, because I took so many, I mean, I don't even think I took the road less traveled. I I really at times feel like I grabbed the machete and cut the road that I had to travel. Mm. I moved to New York when I was 17. I skipped college. I worked doing the worst jobs on the planet that I was horrible at, but I had this really amazing 
work ethic. Like I never gave up. I always showed up and was never afraid to be myself in any room. And I think that that's because I had to learn so quickly that I couldn't be afraid. I didn't have the luxury of being afraid to show up uh, as my myself. And I think even in my work now, I, I constantly find myself in rooms where I'm like, you know, I'll be at the plan. I gave the keynote at the Planned Parenthood conference a couple, like a week ago. And I'm just like, I feel so random in here. <laughs> or I'll be sitting at a, you know, a table, you know, organizing for Hillary Clinton's campaign and feel like I'm so random here. Or I spoke at Harvard last week and I feel so random there. Or even at the writer's conference, I feel so random here. I mean, I actually never quite feel because I think that so many of the things that I love and enjoy are intersect with so many different things that I'm interested in or feel passionately about or feel morally called on to take on that I actually feel random everywhere I go. And I think learning at a, such a young age in my social circumstances that you're going to feel random and you've <laughs> just got to make the best of it and do it anyway and show up anyway, I think was game changing. Mm. Where did that mindset come from? Was that something that your parents cultivated in you? You know, I think that as far as even having the confidence that you have to fake until you make, I think that as I wrote in my book, confidence is not something you just have. It's something that you practice. Mm. And so I think that even when I practice it probably incorrectly and probably like kind of a false way of just, you know, I mean, I was definitely still the kid who, you know, that doesn't – being able to recognize it early on doesn't mean you skip the steps of being like the tortured, insecure kid who mm. doubts every part of who they are and mm. feels – and acts out and competes and compares themselves with other girls and puts people down and bullies and does all of the horrid things that we do mm -hmm. as young girls that society raises us to, to be and act and act like. So, you know, but I definitely think having parents, you know, my, my dad is someone who one of the, my favorite stories about his childhood is, you know, he had, he's one of five and mm -hmm. it's so funny because every single one of them, who talks about my grandmother, who's also, whose name is Cleo. I'm named after her. Every single one of them thinks that they're her favorite. <laughs> and like, so they, every time I see any of them, they're like, well, you know, I was mom's favorite. <laughs> and then they all, and then the big secret is like, Shh, don't tell anyone. But this is what it's like to be the favorite. And they all have this like story <laughs> of being the favorite. And it is so hilarious. And my dad always says that there, you know, their mom would say, don't forget who you are. You tell them who you are. Don't forget who you are. And he's like, and even when we just didn't even know what that meant or, and we, and who we were, we're still just a poor black family in New Orleans in the segregated South, mm. you know, even when that didn't mean anything, there was something, it was a practice. It was a mantra. And I definitely was raised by parents who have mantras. You know, my dad would have a mantra that was, I make money. It doesn't make me. My dad is like definitely an amazing one-liner person. And, and and whether those were things that my parents were able to practice or not, I, I saw that they had them. They said them. They did them. And, I, and, you know, I think for my parents to be, you know, I mean, even when they were getting married, and this was in the early 80s, they went to three different places that wouldn't marry them as an interracial couple. And so I think to have the courage and, and have the mantras where you're like, whether that's I love who I love or I am what I am or this is my partner, I think having examples of those types of proclamations were really what helped me as a young person to say, okay, I am who I am. 
I look like what I look like. And I think that because I had parents who said, you know, it's special. Mm. Um, and they didn't tell me that there was something wrong with it. And, and it's interesting because as a kid, it, what I had to shake in my 20s was you're special. Because it was so funny because I had my, my parents told me my whole life, well, you're just so special. You're so special. You're so special. <laughs> and then you realize that it is impossible to be in community with other women, especially if you think that you're special. Mm-hmm. If you think that you are more special than her, if you think that your problems are more special, mm-hmm. your busy is more special than her busy. If you think that when you walk into the room, the eyeballs that look at you are looking at you in a more special way than other people, we lose our ability to connect when we think that we're more special than anyone, which is why that there's that great saying, um, nobody's special because everyone's special and everyone's special because no one's special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's so funny, but I think that having that false concept as a kid really helped me because I was in such weird and traumatizing circumstances, you know, being raised in the a racist environment as the only black kid a lot of the time. So I think that luckily that was kind of my, almost my magic carpet was you're special. Mm-hmm. And it was that thing that the, it was the story and the narrative I could tell myself at that time to really survive it with grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was interesting to like in my later twenties be like, Oh my gosh, you're not special. <laughs> and then that being what changed my life for the better was yeah. to be like, you're not special. You're not special. And I still have to say that to myself sometimes being like, Cleo, like relax, you're not special, you know? But how do you kind of reconcile mm. that with also having the confidence to do things that a lot of people are afraid to do? You have to have a huge degree of self-confidence to do that and a belief in yourself that you are a little bit special in order to be able to do those things. So how do you kind of reconcile those two thoughts? I definitely don't keep the thought that I'm special. I definitely get rid of that right away. I just don't think that that thought gives your dreams the longevity that they deserve. Mm. What I work on instead is um, these tools will help you. So whether it's for me, when I take big risks, I have a mantra that I also put in Heart Talk, which is it basically says it's not enough to take the risk. You have to also accept the risk if you want to be good at it. And so I really practice accepting the risk. And as far as having the confidence to do something, I, A, like check my inner dialogue constantly. Mm. I make sure that I'm never shit-talking myself to myself. Mm. And I also surround myself with people who are are not only encouraging, but a soft landing place when I reach for the stars and don't get them and fall. And it's soft when I get there. And so I think that, A, keeping the people around who who make your confidence real and possible is critical. And I think also knowing that every single moment, every thought you have, every word you say is either building or destroying your confidence is probably the most important part of trying to have it in the first place. Mm. How do you pull that inner dialogue back on track when sometimes it does go off a kilter? Do you pause and call out the thought that you're having? Well, there was one, and I actually really wanted to put this in the book, but it didn't it didn't end up making it because it was a little for the style of how everything else was written, it was a, it was a little too complicated for me to to write. Mm. but i I have like a one for one system when I'm kind of going through it, which is every negative thought I have, I'll combat it with a positive one. And I have this mantra that is okay and. And so if I hear myself say, 
you didn't meet the writing deadline, you didn't get it done, you don't finish things, you, you're not, you know, all mm-hmm. the things, because it's never just the one, right? It begins, it begins the spiral. Yeah. Yeah. And I redirect the thoughts. So I'll say, okay, and tomorrow, the morning is the best time for you to write, and this will be the first thing you do. Mm. And I think that when we understand that we can't control what pops up, because I think a lot of the times we get so devastated by which thoughts pop up in our psyche that we don't realize how much control we have once they do get there. You know, we can't, there is nothing you can do about what pops up in your brain, right? But there is so much you can do with how you direct that Mm. traffic. So I think when we can figure out how to guide it to a place that actually serves us, all of those thoughts help build the momentum we need to continue on in whatever we're trying to accomplish. Back in 2014, Cleo posted her first Instagram with a simple message. Dearest, I'm writing you this letter to inform you of my unbreakable nature. That's all. Love, women everywhere. We asked Cleo whether, when she made that first post, she envisioned her life to have turned out the way that it has. I remember I was in a soul food restaurant in Harlem when I put that post up. I wasn't vegan then. <laughs> I was eating um it was eating catfish. Oh, and it was it was a, this restaurant I love called Melba's and they have um, R&B every Tuesday. So that's how I know it must have been a Tuesday. <laughs> and um I was my the last of all of my friends to have any type of online platform and, and Instagram is still the only platform I have and uh I remember all of my girlfriends because I was like the person that they all wished that that they could be because they all felt the time suck of having the platform. So they were just like, you have no idea how uncomplicated or like, because, you know, I was the person who was never like in that zombie state Mm -hmm. on the phone. I was never stalking like an ex-boyfriend or, you know, I I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I was like, I didn't have, I didn't have any of that. So I had like the lifestyle envy of everyone because I just made art in my apartment and I wrote and I traveled and I wrote and so I remember everyone was like, why are you doing this? Why? And I remember thinking that, you know, two years before I made a, some art pieces and all of my artwork always had words in it, but sometimes it'd be a mix of the words and collages and I'd paint them and I'd make, make public art pieces. And and my mentor at the time was like, you know, Cleo, the, the words are the best part, but I can also tell that they're the part where you feel the most insecure. He's like, take a year to just focus on the words and I promise it'll change your life. And so I took a year to just travel and just focus on the words. And also I really took that time to really get to know myself because I could tell that there was a part of me that was ready to live outside of the people I knew just immediately because of our physical proximity and I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if that meant that I was supposed to write poems to them. I didn't know if it was because I was supposed to write articles or I didn't know what that meant. But I was like, you know, I feel like who I feel like I am to my inner circle and my close friends and the people, whether it's in the art scene or the fashion scene or whatever in, in New York or California. I was like, I just, I feel like I'm meant to be with so many more people in the world. But because I understand the responsibility that also comes with it, I was like, you know, I have to be so firmly rooted in who I am before I decide I'm going to say anything to anyone else. And so when I really took the time to do that, I remember putting that first 
post up um, and all my friends were like, why are you doing this? And I was like, because I think I understand what I want to say now. And even in those early days, if you look at the writing, it's still a little insecure as far as there's certain things in the writing where I joke or say like, you know what I mean? Or like, and because I still wasn't quite feeling secure enough to say like, because this worked for me, I think it'll work for you. Because this thought helps me, I think it'll help you. Because I don't even think I had evolved my own thinking to that point. I was just kind of like, I was so afraid. And so I think that then watching the way that A, the work grew, the audience grew so quickly. And I, and I do remember definitely having that aha moment. I think it was when my following reached probably around like 20 or 30,000 people. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, if this many eyeballs are going to be on what I'm doing. You know, the work cannot just be about being beautiful or being sweet or being like a smile in the day. We've also got to figure out what we're going to do with the responsibility of all these eyeballs being on the work. And I think that was definitely the moment where uh, my work took another shift as far as really being something that was not just beautiful, but useful and not just art, but something that was active and, and something that where you felt like you could be a part of something or share information or share tools. And, and I think from there is when I really grew into the identity of the work as far as what I knew the work was meant to do in the world. It's fairly evident that Cleo has incredible clarity around why she does what she does. It's her purpose and it's her life's work. Much like Oprah spoke to millions in their lounge rooms through the TV, Cleo's words are encouraging deeper conversations for the next generation through Instagram. So we asked Cleo, how does she respond to being dubbed the millennial Oprah? It's definitely the most flattering thing I've ever heard. But whenever something, whether it's super flattering, because A, like, listen, you know, we still have to work with the mantra, you're not special, right? Mm -hmm. And so... You know, whenever something really amazing happens, I always or, or is said about me, I I always look at it as a sign to put my head down and do the work. And I, I wrote this in, in the book because it's something I work with so often, which is um, and I preach to my friends so much, which is the second you give anything uh, the power to make you feel like you're on top of the world, you give it equal power to make you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to be so careful in our work and in our career that we stay focused on what our goal is as far as like, you know, why we get up and why we make the work mm -hmm. and why we do what we do. And we don't really let the outside accolades or comments, because listen, for every millennial Oprah comment, there's probably something that's calling me who knows what. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, it's really hard to um, make sure you keep a balance in your life, I think that if you give way too into like the, the glory of it all, you don't realize how much you give equal weight to the darkness. So I think for me, I have, um, before I write anything, I have a promise to my audience. And I think that because I've made a promise to my audience, just to myself, you know, I think because of that, it always helps me to stay focused on why I write and why I make what I make. And so I don't get too caught up either way in the, in the kind of positive or the negative. Mm. No, I was just going to comment on that because you sort of were talking about this concept of balance and a lot of the women that we've interviewed have spoken about their struggle with finding balance in their own life, whether it's balance between work or family or passion and purpose. I'm just curious, what does balance look like for you and do you have balance? Do you want balance? I think balance is a delusion, to mm. be honest. 
I think the second you feel like you've balanced something, you just need a whole new set of circumstances to balance. Mm -hmm. I think instead the conversation that is so important for women to have is, you know, there's so much conversation about go get what you want, go get what you dream of, go for it, go for it, just do it, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't have a lot of conversation about how to receive and own our dreams once we get them. And then, you know, okay, start that business. But we don't talk about how to scale that business. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about how to make sure we set up that business um, in a way that is financially sound. We don't talk about how to make sure that we're having the right conversations with the right mentors and peers once we're in that space of living that dream. And so I think that we spend a lot of time with these kind of like delusional concepts like balance. And, and I do think that ultimately it's distracting from having the conversations that actually would really help us, mm -hmm. which is, okay, I have my dreams and I didn't realize that it would feel horrifying every step of the way. You know, I was listening to this um, podcast the other day and the woman said, uh, oftentimes we confuse a nervous breakdown with a nervous breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And and I, I loved that so much because, you know, as someone who's like, listen, I mean, I grew up poor and in Louisiana I still go home and go hang out in my mom's above ground pool in the backyard. <laughs> and so, and, and I'm like, and I have a house party with red cups. Okay. <laughs> so, so do we. Yeah. <laughs> so worry. it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was so funny earlier today, Patty and I were walking. Um, I don't even know if she can hear this, but we were walking and there were like some porta potties and uh, she was, and I was like, I was like, I just have to use the bathroom. She's like, okay, I'll get you to one. I was like, there's some right here. And she's like, and she's like, oh no. And I was like, girl, I can use a porta potty trash. I was like, I had a bead behind this building. I was like, it's not. It's fine. It's, okay. it's fine. It's fine. Uh, it was, but it was so funny. She's just like, pretend you're at Coachella. I was like, girl, this could be literally like anywhere. It's like, I'm from New Orleans. Like we, like during Mardi, I learned to pee outside in an alley at like mm -hmm. seven because because of Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest, I was like, I can handle this, you know? Um, and so, you know, for me to come from where I've come from and take the chances I've taken at times where I was just so afraid and it would have always been so much easier to just change and reroute to something where I would have had to answer to people less or answer uncomfortable questions in a more comfortable way. My life feels so miraculous. And so when I am in these places where I feel like, oh my gosh, you know, you have a book or you're doing this dream project or you have a billboard in Times Square for your artwork, mm -hmm. it's like, but it's actually a lot to handle. And I think that so much of the time, um, you know, we just don't have those, those conversations about, wow, like you can have all these amazing things happen, but you don't feel amazing. And it's not because from a place of not feeling grateful, but because it's actually so much to handle to kind of mm -hmm. enter into a different life because having your dreams means that you leave a place where you were, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, and the yes. thing about where you were is that you know that terrain really well. So even if it's the place you've always wanted to be, it's still completely unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. And so you're really uncomfortable even in this space where your dreams come true. The conversation I so look forward to women having more is less about balance and more about, okay, how do we proceed? Yeah. Mm. You know, how do we keep going and take in and how do we support each other in these spaces where we're not having conversations? Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it does feel like that. I think for us as well, as we grow this business, 
it's this space that keeps expanding around us and beyond us and it's including all these amazing people that we get to speak to and that can be scary and uncomfortable but also really exciting and you just have to tune into that. Mm. There's a line that I love in the book, do not ignore your intuition. There is an infinite intelligence within you. Let it be your guiding light. In a business and a personal sense, has that always been there for you? I think especially as women, our female intuition and our gut is where our most powerful judgment calls can be made. I remember once I was with a girlfriend of mine and she was um, having this fight with her boyfriend. And it was so funny because, you know, when you just have a friend who says something that's like unexpected, mm-hmm. it was really my favorite thing she's ever said. But she, um, because <laughs> you know what, it's like seems almost out of character, but you don't yeah. want to say it's out of character because it was so wise. Mm. But it was like, it was something that I, it, it literally felt because it was so out of character for her to say it actually felt like she was just a vessel saying like really important information mm. because it just <laughs> felt like, Really? You just said that? Like, where did that come from? You, you actually wonder where did that come I from? Because it's not really your, you know. Yeah. And she was saying that um, she was having some conversation with her boyfriend and he kept denying something. I don't remember what it was, but whatever he was denying, it was, you know, it was true. And, mm. and he was saying it was false. And she was like, and you know, the thing she said, the reason I'm so upset about it is not even because he's lying, but because his lies are making me second guess my own female intuition. (laughs) And she was like, and that really pisses me off. And I remember thinking like, wow, you know, that was such a profound comment because I was like, you know, the second we disconnect with that, we really disconnect with like a superpower that we have. And I think that the rest of that line has to do with be careful when it comes to taking the opinions of others in yeah. a way because essentially you could end up walking a day and everyone else yeah. 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 Uh, and I remember thinking wow you know you know we can all use the same tools and and take the same advice but when we pair that advice with our own intuition and our own gut which no one has but us mm. uh, that's when we're able to really see miraculous things happen in our own lives and we're really able to see something that could be blanketed advice, have these incredible, mystical experiences. And so I, I do think that a lot of the reason why we end up being really afraid or we don't know what to do. And I, I mean, I have so many friends who have just decision-making fatigue. I have friends who will do just make everything so impossible around them so that the decision has to be made, you know, where they just like, don't make the decision, don't make the decision. So then they mm-hmm. have to get on that flight yep. because there was no other flight they could take. So like the decisions make themselves. And I always tell her, I'm like, listen, you know, you have to connect with your why. And you also have to connect with your intuition that tells you that everywhere you're supposed to be is the right place for you to be, or you wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. And You have to just be the person who can make decisions because I'm telling you, if you can't just make the decision about what you want to do and why you're doing it and just do it because everything is about people who can make decisions and people who can't. But I have a friend who says, um, vision without execution is delusion maybe. (laughs) But the thing is execution, that's the decision-making process. You know, you have to be able to pull the trigger and, and I think that that's why I always tell people, I'm like, find out your why. And even if your why is like the promise you make to yourself. I mean, I have a promise I make in my business. 
and I have a promise I make to my audience. And because I always know what that promise is within myself, I never have a problem when it's um, when I have to make a decision in my work. So whether it's who I collaborate with or why I say yes to something or which publisher I go with or why I do this public art piece with this partner or the like, and the kind of promise I make is, well, if I couldn't explain this decision to a room full of 200 young girls, then it's the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. And if I can't live with that amount of transparency, then it's not the right decision. So that's what makes my yeses and nos, not just yeses and nos, but hell yeses and hell nos. Mm -hmm. And my the promise I make to my audience every time I pick up my pen and write something in my notebook or put it in a book or put it on a wall is no matter who you are, where you are, or how lonely you feel, know that I am looking for you and know that I am writing this for you. And because I know that, I always, the decisions I make as far as where that work goes, I know who it's for. You know, I know my why, I know my who, and the decisions just get made. And so I think when you understand that, it makes it so much easier to navigate the field because once you start, as you'll see, scaling the business and working together and big, doing even bigger collaborations than you're doing right now, you have to know those things. I want to change tack a little bit and ask you about this kind of idea that we are a little bit traumatized by daily news and I guess the reality of the world that misogyny exists, racism exists. It's all kind of like crashing down on us, especially those of us with Twitter. Um, how do you kind of acknowledge that but then also keep moving forward? Well, first of all, never affirm trauma or negativity because it stays with you. So mm -hmm. never say that we are traumatized. Mm -hmm. Never say that I am traumatized. Never say that I am depressed. Never say that I have anxiety. I don't own things that I'm trying to move through, mm -hmm. right? Um, because our words have so much power. Mm -hmm. I always tell my girlfriends, I'm like, you need to use every word as if it was a spell. Mm -hmm. And think about the precision you have to have if you're performing a spell. I mean, we've all seen a movie about witches where it's like if the one thing is off, if the one ingredient is off, if the one word is mispronounced, none of it works. Yeah. And yeah. so if you had to move through the world like that, how immaculate would you be with every word that you say? And so first, I never affirm trauma. I never say I am traumatized. And I deal with like very severe moments of anxiety but I never say I am an anxious person or I have anxiety. And so first, I correct the language. Mm -hmm. Second, I acknowledge that we have never lived in a world without struggle. Uh, you know, Coretta Scott King said, freedom is never really won. We have to earn it and win it in every generation. I think we have to understand that our role isn't just to make ourselves happy or comfortable in this life, but it's to make the world we live in inheritable for the next generation. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you find the motivation to do the work beyond your lifetime. So you understand that when you get up and you do this work, you don't do it so that you get to chill. You do it so that you know your children, your friends' children, their children can actually inherit a place that they can live in as free as they could possibly be. So we've just got a couple of final questions that we'd love to ask you. And the first is, who inspires you? I'm really inspired by other people. I'm inspired by y'all. I think that, you know, listen, you cannot write well about the human experience or human emotions if you can't first listen 
So I think that anyone who's looking to do anything great, their first stop should be creating an amazing practice of compassionate listening. Mm -hmm. I listen to people on the subway. I listen to my neighbors when I ask how they're doing. I sit and listen to my girlfriends. I think as a writer, you learn that the best thing you could do is do more listening than you do talking. And finally, what is next for you? What is on the cards? <laughs> you know, I'm just right now, I'm really just enjoying, I'm going to be touring my book for basically a year. I, and most people do the tour for like two weeks because yeah. they do an actual wow. promotional tour. But when I made this book, I was really clear with my publishers that I was really only creating a book as a vehicle to be in community with my audience. My signings last like four hours mm -hmm. because I really sit with everyone. I've been bringing my best girlfriends on my tour with me so that we can mm -hmm. share our healing tools. So for me, I'm just, I'm so enjoying being able to sit with my audience and really get to know them and understand what they're going through and where the work is able to show up for them. I mean, at my last signing, my signing a few minutes ago, I had one woman who was like, you know, I am, um, I'm making a career transition and she was in her sixties and she was like, and my family's not approving. And I was like, sis, <laughs> sit down for we, a minute. We're going we, to get, we're gonna get <laughs> you know, and, and I had, a, I had another one who was like, I had a day where I literally ran away from my household. She was like, I just felt like I couldn't be in my marriage anymore. I just mm -hmm. didn't, couldn't even be around my own children. She was like, I walked into a bookstore. I got your book and she's like, it saved my marriage. Mm -hmm. And wow. so I think that, there is so much wisdom for me to gain from being in community with my audience that the only things I look forward to are different ways that I can do that. So whether it's in person, whether it's online, whatever it looks like, I'm so grateful that I get to be in their lives. And so all of my intentions right now are, are set on how I can show up for them. And here's what Cleo had to say about what she got up to in Sydney. I didn't realize that it was basically like an exercise walk and everyone doing exercise walks. Uh, yeah. So I was actually wearing like an outfit like this. I was wearing like head to toe Gucci with like sneakers. Oh no. I, I, I was wearing walking shoes because I knew I was walking around, but I had like a real, just like an outfit on. Yeah. I felt like an episode of Ab Fab, like walking that because I was like in this whole thing. I had earrings and I had lipstick and I had sunglasses and I'm like, wow, it, this is the equivalent to being like on one of the canyons or something in LA yeah. and showing up in like a full outfit with like yeah. sneakers on. I was like, the Kardashians wouldn't even do that. So I was feeling really extra yesterday. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram, lady.brains, and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.